This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by ArtUK.org, the online home of the UK's public art collections. You can also find us on social media on the handle ArtUK.org, spelling out the word dot. Make sure you head over to the site after each episode to see images related to the discussion. I always include a link down there in the show notes. Whether you grew up reading them or not, you're probably familiar with the classic children's early readers comprised of simple sentences and colorful illustrations. In the U.S., there was the Dick and Jane series, and the U.K. has a series of readers by Ladybird Books, including Fairy Tales, the People at Work series, and of course, Peter and Jane. In recent years, the books have gained new life through a parody series that includes subjects like hangovers and dating. Even if the readers aren't quite from your era, we all seem to have a shared nostalgia for the books, and I suspect the images may play a big part in that feeling. I was born in 1964, which is the same year that Peter and Jane, the Peter and Jane reading scheme, was first produced. And so I sort of, I feel I'm the same age as Peter and Jane, and I've, I've been through a lot with them. That's Helen Day, a historian and collector of Ladybird books, and the curator of the exhibition, The Wonderful World of Ladybird Artists. For me, Ladybird books are fundamentally picture books. They have that, or they had then, that very fixed format, which had the illustration on the right and a page of text on the left. And always my eye was just drawn straight to the picture. And the pictures were quite particular. They were always very dense and generally very colourful. And you read the picture. And if the picture engaged you, which nine times out of ten it did, you then read the text. And so they're very much, the, it, the books were all about the artwork for me. Inspired by her love of Ladybird books, Helen began to collect them and share her findings on her website, Ladybird Fly Away Home. It was this site that enabled artists and other collectors to reach out to her with stories, and she began to get an interesting perspective on the social history of the books. They started in 1940 in the, the sort of the books that we remember, and then the factory was closed down in 1999, so right at the end of the 20th century. So I think in those amazingly rich, dense illustrations. We capture so much about the, the second half of the 20th century and a time of real change. And, uh, and not only in what the pictures show, but in the choices that the publisher chose to make about how to depict things, what not to show and so on. So I, I just find them endlessly fascinating now for that reason. Well, you mentioned that they started around 1940, which is interesting. That's kind of as World, the first, the Second World War is kind of kicking off. I wonder, are there themes relating to that that happened in the earlier books? Oh, very much. The war absolutely created it created Ladybird because Wilson Hepworth, which was the company behind Ladybird, was just a, a Loughborough printers. They had a very diverse printing business in Loughborough, and they weren't publishing books until the First World War. In the First World War, other work was drying up and, uh, you know, the, the, the workforce was depleted. And so they started printing very cheap and, <laughs> frankly, quite ugly children's books just to mm -hmm. sort of keep the printers rolling. But this was far from their core business. And then something similar happens again during the Second World War, where their core printing business is drying up. But they come up with the idea that, well, it is discovered rather ingeniously that if you have, in a time of paper shortages, if you take one, the largest then available sheets of paper and carefully lay it out front and back 
And through folding and cutting, you can create an entire children's book with about 50 pages from just that one piece of paper. So it was hitting on that format during the war, through the the extremities of war. And uh, the books were successful in that format. It it just stuck, struck a a seam of gold, really. Today, Lady Bird is owned by Penguin Random House, and the books they publish have changed with the times. Now you may find something about Peppa Pig, or even a children's book about feminism. If you ask someone about their classic books, however, you're likely to hear two names. For many people, when they think about Lady Bird, they think about learning to read with the two characters, Peter and Jane, because the books which first came out in 1964 hung around in schools and they were revised in the 1970s and they were still around on the shelves in the 80s, maybe 90s even. So generations of children sort of grew up with these books. I think the Peter and Jane books, when you read them now, the text is so dull. It was really, really boring stuff. The whole idea was William Murray, who devised the reading scheme, had a particular way of pseudoscientific way of introducing <laughs> new words, which meant that you had a very, very few words to write your first books with. So the books completely stood or fell on the success of the picture to engage young eyes. Mm-hmm. But I find it fascinating to think that Martin Aitchison, who was one of the main artists for these books, he had worked during the Second World War. He was very hard of hearing, so he wasn't in active service. So he was working for vicars doing technical manuals and drawings and was taken on by Barnes Wallace to help draw up representations of the bouncing bomb and how it would, the effect it would have and to try and sell when Barnes Wallace was trying to sell the idea of the bouncing bomb. So for me, that tells you so much about Ladybird and the, 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 the theme of the war running all the way through and the diverse background of the, these artists. While Peter and Jane is one of the more famous series by the publisher, there were several other popular themes commissioned under the guidance of one man's vision. Over the golden years of Lady Bird, the commissioning editor was called Douglas Keane. And he was a socialist. And as with most of the artists and the writers of the time, they'd been through the war, they'd been through the Second World War. And there was a desire, I think, to sort of, to protect children. And so the books which were originally published in the sort of the 1940s were very much for preschool children and were very retrospective looking. They were sort of very uh, rural and safe places for preschool children. In the Douglas Keene years, he very much saw the potential for Lady Bird to open up the market, which was in educational books for the growing education market following the 1950s, educational developments, including the Education Act. So his targeting the books at older children and non-fiction as well as fiction. This means that when we think of Ladybird, often the first thing you think of might be sort of soft and fluffy. It might be the sort of learning to read books and books mm-hmm. for very young children. But as Ladybird got more and more successful and they diversified, they were going from covering a huge range of topics. So you've got um, the, 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 how it, the, the How It Works series where it's tracing technological innovations in quite a technical way, with lots of very um, impressively uh, detailed uh, technical drawings. You have the photorealism of John Berry and the People at Work series, where he documents the different jobs that it's expected children will do. 
or particularly boys, I remember as a girl feeling, I'm not sure I want to be a nurse. <laughs> and there was, at that time, there didn't seem to be a lot else, else out yeah, there. Yeah, at that time, um, yeah. You know, there's the learning to read books, the fairy tale books, the achievement books, and of course the history books, which, you know, were very much following the school curriculum of the time and again were much about male explorers and male leaders. <laughs> Do you think that was the objective to kind of um, be in line with what the school curriculum was? Uh, I think there were two objectives. It's it's quite hard to, uh, over these years, it's it's hard for us today in our with our experience of huge corporations to realise quite how much the vision behind the choices made by Lady Bird in those years were actually the thoughts of one man, this Douglas Keane. And uh, he he very much believed in education for all. He free education. Uh, the the he was a socialist. He he described himself once as the one of only two Marxists living in uh, in Stratford on Avon. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this is his personal feelings. But at the same time, he was growing up, getting trying to get work in the Great Depression. He knows what it's like not to have work, and he had to sacrifice his dreams of being an architect in order to to, to make money for the family. So he's been through the war, as have the artists he's commissioning. They know what. Uh, what hard knocks life can can bring and so he needs to make money to look after his family and also he was a grammar school boy in a in a sort of a, the board of directors was quite public school of course and he was trying to find his way and having to tailor his you know balance his ethics with the desire to do well so he may not have personally had much time for religion but they produced religious books for the sunday schools and and so on and so forth but you can see very much his Profound faith in the social system, especially in the in the in the nineteen sixties, shining through, and his the way he very much promotes those people who work for a better society. In order to push ahead with his new vision for Ladybird, Douglas Keane realized that the illustrations would be very important. He settled on animals and nature for the first theme under the new direction, and Keane wrote the text for the first book on British birds himself. They wanted the quality to really shine out. So they commissioned, and it's not always the case with Lady Bird, but they commissioned artists who were well known in their own right for as naturalists, as nature artists, people like C.F. Tunnycliffe, John Lee Pemberton, Roland Green, um, the Hilders, Roland Hilder and Edith Hilder. Um, these artists had, had a name for themselves outside. And it was a, as if to sort of the guarantee that they would be taken seriously as the first serious non-fiction series that Lady Bird did. After that, the trust in the brand of Lady Bird was such that Douglas Keane was able to appoint people that he knew and that he trusted would be the right artist for a particular commission and had an unerring eye, I think, at how he matched up artist with commission. How were they finding the artists? Is it through his personal relationships or? Yeah, uncannily so. Ladybird was in these years so much the project of the kitchen table. I mean, quite literally, he got permission from the from Loughborough that he could hold editorial meetings in his kitchen in Stratford oh, wow. and, uh, and actually sat around their Formica kitchen table in his, uh, in his um, Festival of Britain-inspired new, new build home and invited the artists and the writers together and they would sit around and his wife would make them a nice lunch and they would discuss it and then they would say well I know so and so I used to work at the Eagle and so and so is also could possibly take on that job and 
and friends of friends and connections were made that way. And Douglas Keane always loved a, a, an expert. So <laughs> if you found out an expert in a field, he would get excited about that and then have a look at their work. And uh, yeah, very much all sort of through this little home, home-baked web. <laughs> these artists put in an incredible amount of work to produce the illustrations for these books, and it wasn't just their connection with Keane that sustained their relationship with Ladybird. They paid well. Ladybird paid well, um, relatively to the times, and yeah. the times were hard. That was why a lot of very good artists kept coming back, and that comes mm-hmm. through in the correspondence that you see. The, the, the fact was, Ladybird Books had the picture doing so much in the books, so you had a full-page picture. And lots of them, there are 24 illustrations at least in each book. So on piecework, which they were doing, they were paid per illustration, they paid well. And so artists who otherwise would like to have been doing other work were lured into doing book after book, as well as through their, the, they had excellent relationships as a rule with, with Douglas Keane, the commissioning editor. It's so much work to do when you think about it. I mean, completing a, doing a, a complete painting at that level, uh, that when you think about it in terms of the amount of works produced, these are pretty prolific artists. I am awed by that. I really yeah. am. I cannot, that is a very fact. Each one of these you look at and it's a little jewel and you can't do this. You couldn't produce pictures of that quality unless you really put something for yourself into it. You go, you over-engineer the picture because you, you simply can't do it. And yet on the timescales that they had, and the quantity that each book required, mm. I, I, I am in awe of them. And not all of them could do it. I mean, Douglas Keane commissioned lots of editors, lots of artists to try out, and lots were rejected. But when he found an artist who met his standards, who could do what he was asking them to do, which was a lot, generally he stuck with them and the pay provided them with a very in untroubled times and in a difficult profession, steady income for many years. Even though we're focusing on the artists and illustrations in this episode, Ladybird books are primarily thought of as readers. I wondered if maybe this meant that, despite all of their hard work producing the illustrations, artists weren't credited in the same way that the writers were. Right from the start, even in the era when as I've said, so much, so many commercial artists weren't credited. Ladybird gave full billing, equal billing between writer and artist, although this was on the title page. It was never on the cover of the book, mm-hmm. or almost never, because uh, that Ladybird was the brand. This was the thing you trusted. This was the thing you were buying. You were buying the Ladybird book about this or that. But once you turned the page, Yes, the artists always got equal credit with the writer. Many of the artists who illustrated for Ladybird were established in their careers, working across fine art and commercial projects. Several can even be found on the Art UK website because their works are held in public collections. It was from these external achievements that artists would come to the attention of Douglas Keane and utilize their talents to inspire young readers. John Lee Pemberton, for example, was a well-known nature artist and a portrait painter. And I've got some letters from him writing to a a family member. And it's so clear that he is is illustrating for Ladybird because they pay well. And he's obviously putting his heart and soul into the works because you can see he knows no other way. But in his letter, he's it's clear he finds this work demeaning. He's waiting for the great 
the, the real opportunity to come along to do serious work, mm. which is heartbreaking, really, when you think about the amazing impact of his illustrations on generations of children who've grown up to love nature, that he could not, at the time, society didn't encourage him to see what he was doing in that positive way. Yeah. I mean, there were, the war got in the way of the fine art careers that so many of these artists thought that they were going to be pursuing. I mean, maybe they would never have done so. But, for example, John Berry, one of my favourite artists, had struggled through lots of hardships and in a, in a difficult time, finally gets um, a, a full scholarship to the Royal Academy. And the year was 1939. And he had to give up his scholarship and sign up. Now, in his case, illustration work that he did as a, as a, in the RAF was drawn to the attention of some bigwigs who literally took him off the truck as he was heading to the front and said, go to Cairo for an interview. And he became a war artist, effectively. Uh, wow. He was very proud to say he was the only war artist actually drawn from the ranks. I mean, John Kenny, uh, um, a Leicestershire artist, was also uh, a war artist too, but uh, it didn't come up quite through the same route. And I think one of John Berry's pictures, well, several of his pictures can still be seen at the Imperial War Museum. And one of them was used, I think, it was used in uh, Winston Churchill's memoirs. So uh, the war very much sort of runs through the, the history of the Ladybird artists, forcing them to make compromises and challenges and take the work that was available in post-war Britain. Huge amount of that was commercial art. Some of the artists, such as John Berry, who had a very naturalistic style, really embraced the opportunities of commercial illustration, because if it was basically, if it was a photograph, he could do it justice. Other artists, as I've said, uh, from John Lee Pemberton, found that much harder pill to swallow. It's interesting with John Barry because I'm looking at some of the works he has on the Art UK site. Yes. And it's portraits of um, various military figures. And you see them and you're like, yes, this has that ladybird look to it, this quality that is so recognisable. Well, do you know, I think John Barry loved portraits. So it's interesting that those are the pictures that you currently have on the site. But he could do anything. Mm. through photorealism. But when I look at his amazing People at Work series, when you look closely, you can see that in every mundane picture of these people going around their daily jobs, you know, a man reading a metre, the nurse taking a temperature, whenever he's allowed to sort of really focus on the person, you can see there's a picture of the fisherman shoveling ice around some of the, the hall. And I, I wouldn't need to know, which I do, that he, he loved uh, the, the great Spanish masters. <laughs> you just got to look at the face of the fisherman yeah. in those books and you can see he's painted a portrait. So you say that in his portraits you can see the ladybird, but I think to an extent that's because all those skills have gone into the Ladybird book and then influenced our idea about what Ladybird looks like, if you see what I mean. Another Ladybird artist found in a public collection is Ronald George Lampett. We have three of his paintings on Art UK, and each one looks like a scene from the happily ever after portion of a fairy tale. He's another artist with connections to the war, and his paintings showcase his impeccable eye for detail and topography. When I was growing up, a lot of the Lampet works for Ladybird books were um, fixtures on the school shelf. 
And uh, there was Understanding Maps and Our Land in the Making and books about insects and animals and how they live. And so for me, at the time, I was very much more interested in history or fairy tales. And these felt schooly. And it wasn't until later that I really started to observe his very distinctive style. Now, he, he didn't have the opportunity to go to art school, which is something he'd really wanted to do, and was forced out into the commercial world uh, mm-hmm. earlier than uh, perhaps he'd have chosen. But perhaps that's also honed a very distinctive style that he has. I say distinctive, but lots of people make comparisons with Revilius. But during the war, he worked in intelligence. And although we can't know exactly what he did, he has an amazing topographical ability to take a sort of scene that ought to be a map or a plan Mm. and turn it into a completely engaging picture. And it sort of imbalances the sort of naivety of the little figures with just a a heart-wrenching sort of nostalgia in the scenes that that he portrays. And as time goes by, I'm just finding that other people are responding more and more to those images in a way we perhaps took for granted. Yeah, he his work has this. Um, the color palette is so serene. It's and, very yeah subdued, yeah, isn't it? Yes, and there's a kind of graphic element which I think translates really well to today's kind of aesthetics. Well, yes, you say that, and so he he found a lot of work in producing railway posters. Yes, which that's the collection. Are so evocative. Yes, yeah. it's part of the National Railway Museum collection. That's it. Yes, that's right, and that's perhaps now how. Outside of Ladybird, people best know him. And not just in one style, too. You can see him playing around with various styles which were popular at the time. Because these artists' works were most widely disseminated in the form of book illustrations, some of their own legacies have become secondary to that of the Ladybird brand over time. As we've heard, some artists felt that they couldn't be fully recognized in their talents through this type of commercial work, and they longed for success in the fine art world. With hindsight, it's exciting to look back at these paintings and lift up the incredible talent displayed across the golden years of Ladybird. Ladybirds also encapsulate that uneasy relationship between the fine artist and the commercial artist. Is there a distinction? How does society perceive those two roles? I mean, as I look through Ladybird books and other publications of the time, you're just bowled over by the skills of the artists who were illustrating the advertisements, the posters, the information leaflets, the magazines of the time, so often completely uncredited. Mm. Um, So when I'm trying to track, for example, other work that John Berry has produced or other work that Ronald Lampitt has produced other than Ladybird, you're so often thwarted by the fact that they aren't credited. And although your eye develops and to be able to spot them, it's very, very challenging. And that shows you how much they were taken for granted at the time and how now in the days of photography and digital imagery, we can go back and just be awed by their sheer skills. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. My thanks to Helen Day and her fascinating stories on these ladybird artists. If you're curious to know more, you can head over to the Art UK website, where I'll be linking out to her website, Ladybird Fly Away Home, and also sharing images related to our discussion today. Helen has also curated an exhibition on these artists called The Wonderful World of Ladybird Artists that will open at the New Walk Art Gallery in Leicester in July 2019. I hope you had fun with today's episode and maybe do a little digging through some old Ladybird books you have kicking around. 
As always, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in again next time.